Two weeks ago, friends of ours, one Jean Asir, who's coming next week, uh, I mean, I, I, a polite ambush, I think, is the way to describe what happened to him, politely caught off guard in his car. Lada Bitar from Public Source, a Cybercrimes Bureau investigation that was halted within, I think, 24 hours or less, but still intimidating. Uh, Nizar Sariye is being advised to not speak. Twice. Twice. He got a new letter today. Oh, even today. And I think Daraj Media stands tall in this community and that I think alternative media doesn't really define what you do. You are media and you're setting the standards high. Yes, we are journalists. We are a media platform. Um, I'm, I'm very hesitant and reluctant in using the term alternative because we are content creators. We are digital media that covers uh, Lebanon and the region. So we are journalists and we wanted to be labeled as such. The word, uh, the word alternative uh, has now different connotations that I don't want to limit myself and Daraj to it. We are journalists and we're trying to do our work. We are not a neutral journalist in the sense uh, we're not isolated from what's happening in Lebanon and the region. We stick to correct information and facts, but we believe that we should give the proper context, the proper narrative to any subject that we cover. You've mentioned, I don't want to interrupt, I know no, no, you still please. have something to mention, but as because you have started uh, on, on really uh, uh, the, the main topic that we're facing now, which is the intimidation, which is the attack on free speech and uh, um, independent voices in Lebanon, whether journalists or, or human rights activists or lawyers. Uh, this is something very serious. And I think this is the real battle here in Lebanon beside other, other things. But if we lose this space we still have in Lebanon, and it's not ideal, but compared to the region, we still enjoy some liberties and some space for freedom of expression and journalism. And I see uh, a growing appetite uh, within the ruling class in Lebanon to really um, limit that space. And this is the real battle that we're facing. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. I'm glad you said that you're not you're not comfortable with these labels alternative or whatever you're competitive i mean the standards are high thanks to a group like Derej and what you've done including your lovely husband hazm lamin and ali ibrahim my I, partners yes your partners i like running into him in badado from time to time late at <laughs> night he likes to talk and share his views on everything so i'm getting to know him better and not going out to badado as much as a result <laughs>
I should be more, uh, more active on that front. <laughs> on the social scene? I don't think so. <laughs> Leave it to him and me. We're, we're doing fine. 30 years ago, if you could take me back to the climate that you dealt with, and I think it's best described as Syrian hegemony. True. And I think a lot of false comparisons are made that today feels like those years again, meaning the story of intimidation, the story of suppression, censorship, it is bad today, but at least the way I remember it, you'd be better at answering this, it doesn't feel as bad as the early 90s, that there's breathing space today, and in a way you can't curtail it the way you could before. Is that a fair analogy? Yes, the ability today to confront mm. uh, what the authorities are trying to do is much higher because it's the digital age. Uh, in the 90s, we didn't have mobile phones or internet or, or all the communication tools that we have today. So the possibility today is, is to stand uh, for these attacks is, is there. Uh, I want to go back to what you have mentioned because many of who are with us today don't maybe get the context of what happened in the 90s. I started working as a journalist in just the year the war ended, in 1991. Okay, the, the, the regional equation at that time was the Syrian regime have an upper hand in Lebanon, a growing Iranian influence. That affected everything, not only the political life, but also media, mm. me, media uh, scale. At the beginning of the 90s, I remember very well that testing the ceilings was, was very harsh. And one of the major experiences at that period, the one that you just mentioned, uh, which was uh, banning news bulletins across Lebanon all over television stations. At that period, there was the uh, trial of Lebanese forces leader, right. uh, Samir Jaja, and the... Um, Even demonstrations around that time as exactly. well. Exactly. There yeah. was a strife, political strife at the country. Mm. The Syrians didn't really control everything, and they wanted to control media. Yeah. So they banned news bulletins for three to four months. And I remember we were struggling. We were coming to television thinking, what are we going to do today? I worked on uh, drugs, on uh, uh, workers, uh, child labor, any topic that is not related to politics. Of course, we understand mm. today that everything is politics, even those social issues. But the idea of spending four months as a journalist, as a news bulletin, as media, uh, uh, me media uh, scene in Lebanon, not being able to tell news is something cannot be imagined in today's world. Yeah. It's, it cannot happen today. So I do see signs of that era trying to be implemented today. Mm. And we've seen it actually across the region. It is happening. We have authoritarian regimes are trying to control media and stopping journalists and free thinkers and activists from saying, uh, uh, being critical to power. We are seeing those attacks in Lebanon. The ability to resist is still there. That's why you see protests, you see independent voices, mm -hmm. whether journalists or lawyers, trying to challenge uh, the power and saying truth to those who are running the country. I like this analogy of a ceiling that's lower in the early 90s, at least, and you, you can kind of feel where your limits are by default. And it's harder to go down the road of, of pure politics, especially trying to hold the Syrian regime to account in Lebanon. I mean, we remember a time where you couldn't say Hafiz without worrying. 
True. And there's no cell phones back then. It's landlines. We wouldn't say Asad. We used to whisper. We'd whisper thinking that. No, that, th- yeah. seriously. Yeah. In, inside the newsroom. Or I even remember. In the newsroom. Yeah. In the yeah. newsroom. If there is something serious, I remember very well my bosses used to whisper in my ear if there is something that they want to, to tell because they were aware maybe uh, a bug or something uh, yeah. were, were recorded. So, yes, we used to whisper sometimes. So that climate of fear, which was felt whether you're a journalist or whether you're just somebody wanting to talk, we felt it and it was real. It eroded over time. I mean, by the early 2000s, I think we were more comfortable saying Bashar but still hesitant to a point. That era where the ceiling is low and you have to, by default, explore other topics. If you can kind of describe the ceiling today, do you think of a ceiling that is there? Because in my mind, the way I, dis- the way I see media portraying every issue in Lebanon, we're pretty much flexible to talk about everything right now. With the exceptions of what we're talking about, meaning we know Jean Asir when he gets ambushed friendly. We know what happens to Lara Bitar, Nizar Sari. These are recent examples. We have other friends that have been summoned. I mean, even during the protest, Dima Sade, Gino Raide, over maybe more than once. We can still talk about the same subjects they're talking about. Do you think of it as a ceiling today or is there no ceiling? And even within your own work. Uh Definitely, we can uh, talk more about topics today without undermining the risks. It's true that here we can sit and discuss, but we shouldn't forget that Luqman Slim have been assassinated and others have been killed without knowing why and what will happen to them and no justice uh, is to be achieved. So there, there is a, a high ceiling of, of openness that you can discuss critical topics, but this is not the only criteria. It's Mm. not enough to discuss. I want to be able to cover stories properly. I want to go to every place in Lebanon being able to interview people, going to South Lebanon, to Dahiye, to North, to to anywhere, Mm. to be able to interview and record and get access to information. This is my role as a journalist is to be able to do that. It's not enough to say it, to discuss it. We want access to information. And this is the critical part. You can talk, but you cannot have access. And to me, what is worst is even when you expose corruption or intimidation or wrongdoing, you cannot achieve justice. So this is there. That's kind of the domain I wanted to get into at the beginning. And then we can go a bit back in time to the evolution of Daraj Media. I want to understand this better. Lukman spoke about the same issue for nearly 30 years. So his language was, was quite aggressive as far back as I can remember. And he's not a journalist per se, but he's a vocal opponent or critic at least to Hezbollah. And he says the same thing over and over and over. He's killed for reasons that are left yet to be determined because there's no investigation. But the vocal opposition is there for a very, very long time. Is there anything there in, in that maybe the expression is tolerated, but genuine accountability is not? So in other words, it's when you get tangled in things that are less to do with expression and more to do maybe with security, the way the Syrians once operated here at a far more focused degree. 
because I'm trying to understand why friends of ours can scream and shout all the time about everything. They're all alive. Certain individuals are not, that at least to me seem to be less involved with expression and more to do with security. Is that a, hel- is that a fair way of saying why certain people pay the ultimate price and others don't? Definitely, uh, you have the right to, to raise the question. Um, I wouldn't limit Luqman Slim just to being critic to Hezbollah. Mm. Luqman Slim was really wider than this. He was a writer. Mm. He was a very smart writer. He was an intellectual. He worked on memory. And I think this is something we should focus on. We have a ruling class in Lebanon who don't want us to confront our memory and what happened during the civil war. Major of Luqman Slim's work focused on memory, accountability, and impunity. Because we have mentioned the Syrian and Iranian's influence in Lebanon, but also we should combine that with the reality that Lebanon was ruled by warlords. Mm. That Lebanon, after the war, did not Uh, uh, ensure justice to the victims of the civil war, to the uh, uh, disappeared of the civil war. Mm. And this is something that we are living till today. We didn't achieve any kind of justice. We didn't confront what we have committed during the Lebanese war. We just moved ahead. The same who were responsible about the atrocities that were committed ruled the country in alignment with the Syrian and Iranian influence. This combination controlled Lebanon after the war. And what we are suffering today is because uh, it's not, uh, you cannot rule a country hmm. where you have an amnesia to what has been committed. And uh, you have also the influence where you cannot really discuss what happened. Just to conclude, hmm. back to the question of Luqman Slim, why Luqman Slim? Yes, we don't have answers, but we have to look at his work. He was critic to Hezbollah, but there are many who were critics of, of um, who are critics of, of Hezbollah's uh, involvement and role mm. in Lebanon. He was not only that; he really was b- far more than being just an opposition to Hezbollah. I know this is his biggest uh, يعني, uh, criteria, mm. but we should not limit him to that. So, with your permission, I'll go one step further in this sure. section because I think this is actually an interesting uh, way of looking at it. I can't think of. Samir Asir, for example, uh, being killed for talking about history of Beirut or the cultural work he did, or even back then, what was deemed more civil society than politics. I can think of him getting killed once he calls on Syrians to overthrow the Syrian regime. True, true. Gibran Twaini in that spirit, too. I don't know if they get killed simply for expressing their thoughts. And I would, I would assume Luqman Slim falls into that broader category, which is, and you tell me if you see it this way, that freedom of expression here is more or less intact. Challenging a security regime is not. And that's the common thread between the early 90s and today. It's a less visible force, at least in the Lebanese scene. We don't see it. We saw it in the 90s. We actually could physically, inter- we could interact with it. We don't necessarily today. But it's that kind of problem. Dima Sadiq is the loudest critic of Hezbollah every Monday night. Uh, Makram has a way of talking about that subject over and over and over, sometimes at a very heightened pitch. And there's many like him. 
but they're all alive. We can analyze uh, the context in which um, Samir Qasir was assassinated and Gibran Twaini and the rest is different than today. Mm. We still have the same uh, yani, key players in the country. We still have the same threats. That's true. Uh, but I think it's not enough to uh, to really decide why they were killed either before or now. Mm. We can analyze. Definitely, I would relate Samir Qasir's assassination to the Syrian uh, influence in Lebanon. Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yes. And today, I can still a- accuse Hezbollah of being responsible, uh, uh, politically at least, for mm. the assassination of Luqman Slim and what's happening in the country because all the security situation that has been linked to what happened to Luqman, where he was uh, kidnapped and assassinated. Mm. How how was he even being re-assassinated again, uh, v- virtually, after he was killed? Slander so, and smearing, yeah. All the time, till today, just mention the name of Luqman Slim on social media and you will see him yeah. bashed again and m- m- people coming out and saying he should be killed. So it's really there all the time. Mm. Is it enough? No, it's not. We need justice. We need proper investigation. And this is the real disease that we are suffering from. We can discuss, we can accuse politically, but where is justice? Where is the judiciary that should take this a step forward? I'm a bit informed regarding the investigation of Luqman's name, and you can easily notice the reluctance of the uh, judiciary in pursuing that case because there is a political intimidation and judiciary in Lebanon has been influenced and attacked. We do have some brave judges, but this is not enough. Mm. So back to your question, Mm. we are journalists, we are trying to do our work, we try to expose, but this is not enough. I can go back to another example, which is the central bank governor, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Riyad Salemi. Daraj is proud to be one of uh, uh, the major uh, media outlets who exposed the wrongdoings of uh, the, the central bank governor. It didn't materialize into a lawsuit in Lebanon hmm. till there was a law, law, there were lawsuits in Europe. Yeah. And it was based on uh, uh, the collar- collaboration of investigation that we did. So it really يعني, frustrates me as a person, as a journalist, to see that you cannot. You do your work as a journalist, you expose wrongdoings, but here is the, the not. يعني, it cannot materialize into something else. And this is something we cannot do. We journalists, we, we come out, we, we try to tell uh, the information we have, but you, you expect other parties in, in the society to work as well. Since Daraj is a fantastic outlet for investigative pieces, and it's done their job, done diligent work, and your experience in the last six, seven years, at least since Daraj was born in late 2017, do you find that there's certain areas that are completely inaccessible? And could that be a topic or even sometimes maybe a geography where there's things you want to cover mm-hmm. and it's quite impressive. You can get to Riyadh Salemi, but, but you cannot get uh, to certain figures, m- for example. So as much as you can say about what your constraints are, at least in what you want to investigate and what you can't. You can again, you can raise the topics, but ne- not necessarily uh, getting the right information Mm. because you don't have access. Geographically, Mm. yes, you don't have access as a journalist. 
in certain areas in Lebanon, you cannot go and film and take your camera. If you go to South Lebanon, if you go to Dahi, unfortunately, some other areas trying to uh, do the way Hezbollah yeah. is, is, is controlling his areas, uh, they would intimidate you if you go out and film. So you can only film in Badaru and here in Jamaizi <laughs> freely. Uh, in other areas, it is a big issue. Right if outside Daraj in Manam. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But go somewhere else and you will find a real uh, uh, challenge to mm. be able to film and talk to people freely. It's true. Uh, interviewing people and driving them to speak f their mind is not always easy, mm. especially if the topic is sensitive, if it's related to sect, if it's related to Hezbollah, and if it's something, if you go to a certain area and you have an influencer uh, who is uh, a warlord or uh, a za'im, a leader, uh, then would, people wouldn't feel easy to talk to you. So people speaking real uh, um, uh, the, the real mind is not always easy in Lebanon despite all the talk that you can see on television um, I don't take that into account when I'm talking about real issues and real topics so you can almost you can sketch the piece but you can't write it is that a yeah yeah, yeah. you can find sources you can find analysts but not necessarily people talking about it mm. especially also social issues um, we all remember a couple of weeks ago the the yeah. gruesome crime that took the life of a young woman. Yes. Her name is Zainab Zaitir. We all have seen the video of her family celebrating her killing. And both sides agreeing. Which On is, both sides. Yeah, yeah. Okay, where is the killer? He disappeared. Did anyone get him? Uh, the whole family. Uh, I, I asked a team, a team member of, of uh, Daraj staff if we can go there to the Zaitir uh, clan and do some interviews. They laughed at me. It's not possible. There are limitations. You can speak, but you don't have access. This is the equation that is governing the journalistic work in Lebanon. That's quite interesting. So expression could theoretically be <laughs> endless. There's no, there's no obvious limit, but the written word and its value is not there. It's not only the written, it's factual word. And the this fact, is, yeah. Yeah, because we, we have this struggle on a daily basis. Mm. We don't want just to give opinions. Yeah. We want to build our story on facts, on people who are concerned and who are suffering from certain topic. And this is the, uh, the struggle, how to make a real good story, not just by saying what the social media say, not just reflecting the um, battles that happened on social media or the opinions. Go on the ground, do your work as a journalist. And this is the real challenge. So I'll leave the recent incidents with Jean Asir and Laura Bitar and Nizar Saghir a little later. I want to get back into your career because it's funny when I look at you, what I remember, it's, I hope this is not impolite to say this. I remember you on TV, even until now when I look at you and I remember you just traveling. Sometimes in Afghanistan, sometimes in Yemen. More recently in Yemen, actually. Actually, yeah, not that long ago in Yemen. I've been to Yemen several times. Several yeah, times. the last time was in 2014, 15. Uh, in Iraq, in Iran. And you're usually, you're dressed for the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always a crew with you. True. And it's my memory of a production house, which was Future TV. This is a long time ago now. This is maybe 25 years ago, around then, where Future TV did not have that kind of baggage the way we talk about it now. Zaven Kuyum Jian was sitting here a few weeks ago. 
he's from that era too. But that's a very different type of journalism. He's he's on his own in a way. But you're a war correspondent, and I mean, you're bringing to light a lot of things that were not easy to do, including Afghanistan under Taliban rule prior to 9/11. True. And this is on Future TV. So that kind of it's not just journalism. There's a lot going on there. Is that why Deraj Media is not just an online website with articles? Are you trying to recreate what I think you're maybe best celebrated for, which is pioneering journalism across different platforms, whether it's documentaries, whether it's simple films, or whether it's anything you want to do in the media landscape? Are you looking back to those years when you look at Deraj today? Uh, to answer your question, yes. Uh, first of all, in the 90s, when I started working, uh, as I told you, when I discovered the ceilings very in the very early 90s, I started to figure um, what can I work without having low ceilings. My compromise, personal compromise, was to choose topics that I can cover properly as a journalist and not being um, yani, intimidated by low ceilings, editorial uh, censorship. So I started working on social issues mm. and then I started, I convinced my uh, editorial management to start doing documentaries outside Lebanon. Oh, so that was and your, you pushed it in that direction. Yes. And they, they were, you know, at the 90s, it was the boom of satellite channels. Yeah. Uh, so uh, future television was really a big hit at mm -hmm. that time. And the, the financial issue was not, uh, was not a big deal. So it was possible to yeah. do really good production in terms of documentaries and other stuff. So they were kind enough to, to accept my offer. And I really went to Iraq under Saddam Hussein. I went to several places. But also during that time, I remember very well my story when I went to uh, Chechen border covering the Chechen issue was not broadcasted due to censorship issues. Oh, uh, so, local censorship. Yes, f uh, within future television. Oh, within future. Yes, ah. because even the, at that time, there were some uh, limitations within, if you go to the Arab uh, scene. I see. Uh, I remember very well, before the uh, the war on Iraq in 2003, I went to North Iraq. I produced a documentary, and it was even broadcast, the the Al-Alim. The advertisement, thank you. Yes. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it was announced on television, but again, due to political reasons, it was removed. I oh, did so not they, stop. They even advertised a, a uh, after documentary the advertisement. That was, wow. Uh, yes, <laughs> it was a long story. I can yeah. go to, into it, but what I want to say, I did not stop. Even when I suffered from censorship, sometimes I used to swallow my <laughs> my anger and move on and try to work on something else. When I came to Daraj, definitely, definitely, all my experiences, me and my partners, Hazem and Alia, we wanted to benefit from the experiences we had, the network, the, uh, the knowledge we have invested in, in, in those years in our platform. So producing documentaries, uh, short videos, visual content, uh, all kinds of contents, whether written, audio, uh, visual, uh, audiovisual, is 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 uh, is key in our production. And it's the digital age; we cannot escape it. I mean, we have to do it. It's not only written. So, yes, to answer your question, yes, all my uh, years uh, as a journalist, war correspondent, documentary producer, definitely are part of my um, vision 
within Daraj and within the work I'm doing today. There's almost a storytelling element sometimes. Even yes. when I read about Riyadh Salemi, it's a there's it's a, journalism. There's, it's not only yeah, you know storytelling is part of journalism. You have to tell the story. Yeah, but it's told in a way that a storyteller would know how to say it. It's not a boring hit job. I think there's a narrative thread in Daraj that at least when I read when I read these articles and I see the digital content, I'm reminded of your work earlier all the time. And I, I don't know if that's me being a little too subjective, but I, I do see it sometimes that no, that's that's your input. Well, I cannot escape it. If you see it, then yeah. it's it's my input probably, and it's the input of the team that is working with us. We have an editorial policy. We communicate with each other, so definitely it's a team. It's a teamwork. Uh, yes, I do have my say sometimes, yeah. but I mean we discuss it. The so, reason I'm phrasing it this way is because the way I see data as an extension to that, and I don't mean this in any way to be. Uh, I'm not trying to age anyone or put any age references here, but you're not the young generation on digital media. You're the future TV crowd from the 90s, and you're able to take what you got from those years and apply them to a new media platform. And I think there's this a is very true because yeah. it's um, it's one of the challenges that we're facing. Uh, we get lots of criticism that we are a, we have a heavy content, even within our team, the young uh, team members, and we have some here. They keep telling that we have a heavy content that she we raise should her be hand, like, <laughs> like a classroom that we <laughs> should the lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> That we should lighten up our content. And I think it's not about lightening it up. It's about uh, what is journalism. You have to do the fact-checking, the storytelling, and sometimes it takes time. And I know that there are lots of content that is more appealing to young generation, but it doesn't fall within the criteria of what journalism is. So, so I'm very um, careful when it comes to what the digital age is requesting and uh, forcing you to do, and what is journalism uh, requesting us to do. It's a conversation I have every single day with influencers that pretend to be journalists. <laughs> it's called attention span. That edge requires you to take a few minutes of your day, maybe sometimes longer, and appreciate the months and sometimes years of work put into one piece. True. You can't just look at it and swipe. Dadaj Media is not an Instagram page, and you're not an Instagram feed. You're a journalist, and I think there is a disadvantage only in the younger generation, at least the way I've experienced it. Their attention span is now too small for TikTok. They want sound bites, they want very easy to access images. And that's not journalism. It's not only the young generation. I agree with your, with your analysis, but I think also we have to look at the tech companies and the algorithm of the uh, applications that we're using. Today, uh, it's true that we sometimes we invest in certain stories weeks and months and maybe longer to, to bring really good, journalist, uh, good journalism in our piece. But the audience is consuming our content mainly on social media, not mm. necessarily on our website. So we have to transform the heavy content into a snackable 
uh, pieces or information on social media. And this is a daily struggle. You are struggling with algorithm. Today, whether this video, you're going to do it horizontal or vertical, is it going to be one minute or, or 130 because Facebook doesn't take more than one minute? So you have to squeeze, keep squeezing real hard work, real hard information to be something that audience can snack on what in, on, on Instagram. And I think this is, I wouldn't say it's damaging. It is, it's the era. It's the new generation. We have to be creative enough to satisfy the needs of the young generation and those who are beyond. So maybe it's too early because it's only been six or seven years since that has started. Uh, roughly six and a half years. Do you think you've accomplished that? Meaning no. No. No, I don't. Mm. We're trying. We mm. keep trying. It's not enough. You succeed in certain areas and certain videos and certain uh, posters, but it's not enough because you have a changing uh, platforms. You have changing algorithms that you need to face, uh, that you need to, uh, to respond to on a daily basis. And at the same time, you have to abide by uh, the ABCs of journalism. It's uh, sometimes it's an impossible equation. If you want to be fast and and uh, really tap on the trending topic, sometimes you need to sacrifice your basic, your journalistic basics. Mm. And uh, if we do that, we commit mistake. I know sometimes we are not um, f uh, we are not getting the audience that we want because of the reluctance we uh, we exercise daily to make sure of the stories that we are covering what is the audience that you want in that sense is it simply the a wider pool of people uh, this is a challenge because daraj is not only daraj is targeting arab speakers we're not only lebanese right. so we yeah. have a wide range of audience that we are addressing in terms of geography and in terms of age in terms of interests so it's a real challenge because you're covering politics investigations in mm. terms of politics and other issues gender uh, uh, environment so it's a really wide audience uh, and it's a challenge we thought it was easier uh, unfortunately, it's much more complicated because you don't have a niche that you're focusing on. So the wider you are, the more uh, difficult it is to get the so audience. That's a perfect segue for me to ask you then. Why did you make that decision early on? Because we believe topics are, uh, issues are um, related. When you talk about autocracy, when you talk about uh, the Iranian influence, mm, when you talk mm. about women issues, LGBT, when you talk about, about poverty, refugees, migration, domestic workers, all these topics, uh, they're not only Lebanese. They are Lebanese, Syrians, Iraqis, and you will find, uh, um, you know, um, same elements repeating themselves in different geographies. So we thought it's it's really, especially it came after the Arab Spring and after the protests. Right. Uh, we thought that we need to raise the bar of independent voices, of critical voices towards the what happened in the region after the um, you know the the attack of the uh, autocratic regimes, the backlash of uh, the Arab Spring. So we felt we have a responsibility to address the underreported topics across the region. And that's why we wanted Daraj to address uh, Arab audience, not only limited to Lebanon. Is that trying to correct satellite channels and how they cover topics? It is 
it is to, to address how media is being polarized in the region and how it is being controlled by regimes and businessmen aligned to uh, autocratic regimes and how much money is being invested in these uh, issue in these uh, media outlets so it's it's not a balance game uh, again the topic of, of of funding is always raised and i'm very happy to address it but if you compare this podcast is brought to you by george soros <laughs> Open source, what is it called? Open society? Open society, yeah. yes. If you compare, Can I get some money from him too? Uh, I will give you. I have oh, you have it? My, Thank yeah, you for bringing the money. Give it to you. That's why we're doing I this episode. I will call him to get you some. Yeah. Ralph Taraf isn't paying. I want George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> Saad Hariri is gone. I need George Soros. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> no, if you compare the budget, we're talking about billions of dollars compared to few thousands per month yeah. for those independent you said voices. B- billions. Billions. Of course, billions. Bi- yeah. I mean, Al Jazeera's uh, estimate budget on a yearly basis is $1 billion. Okay. Um, what about Al Arabiya? Mm. Uh, other, I mean, and, and you have Russia investing in Arab uh, media outlets. Yeah. Yeah. You have Turkey is investing, Qatar, UAE, mm. name it, all big players in the region and of course Iran and you have several Iranian media outlets here in Lebanon (laughs) so if you look at the media landscape how is it controlled in the region and you look at the independent voices that came out after uh, 2011 you're really not being fair but you look at the attack and the demonizing campaign against uh, against those independent voices and then you will understand the impact it's true that they are limited in terms of budget and uh, and reach, but the impact is really um, irritating to those autocratic regimes. So in that world where you, I'm, I'm assuming you want to remain independent as much as you can, meaning you'd rather not have money, but you need- It's a strategic need... decision. We don't take money from governments. Exactly. And I've heard you say it in different ways. And even in person when we met not that long ago, maybe- two years ago, actually, long ago. (laughs) We had this conversation briefly that you're very transparent about it to a point that you want people to know how you get funding and you choose your funding accordingly. That's true. Meaning you want to know what they expect from you in return well in advance. And that's quite nice. Yeah, it's very nice. (laughs) And and you're, you're okay with that. But there is always that kind of maybe hesitation and that do you feel that anything you do, anything, is compromised simply because you need funding to be competitive? Is there anything you've done where you had to take a step back and say this is not going to work out because we need funding? First of all, uh, we're proud that we have been critical towards all the key players in the region. I mean, what's the topic that we did not cover uh, in Daraj? Uh, so you can label us as being pro any kind, any regime mm. in the in the region. We're very happy that our content speak for us in terms of of the editorial um, openness that we have. We have been critical towards all uh, wrongdoers uh, in the region, right. politically and socially. For, this is number one. Two, uh, yes, we review uh, funding in terms who are we taking money from. And what editorial leverage? If they are to have any editorial leverage, simply we we don't take it. 
and we had these discussions before. So they tell you in advance? They don't tell us anything. They don't say anything. We apply, there's mm. an application, we apply, and nobody exercises any kind of editorial uh, leverage upon us. Mm. It's true that they follow our content, but they don't interfere. If there would be any kind of interference, simply we stop taking the money. I mean, we're mm. proud of every story we covered, and I think we have to be critical towards lots of topics. They accuse us of being uh, very vocal about the refugees. Of course we are. And we do that without funding. I do it without any penny being spent because I think it's very toxic. It's very harmful the way this topic is being dealt with in Lebanon. It's very scary how we are waging a hate campaign uh, against refugees and it's not helping the Lebanese who are suffering in Lebanon. This is one example that is being uh, used against us. I've heard that actually in many different places online in person and I, I know this that that's the editorial line you would have with or without funding. Of course. I of know course. that's true. Yeah. Domestic workers, women issues, yeah. uh, LGBTIQ, freedom of speech, all these topics. Militia interfering with within uh, civil life, whether in Lebanon or in Iraq, um, military running the country like in Egypt, um, banning people from speaking on social media in the Gulf, all these topics that we have covered. So with your permission, have you ever, you can say yes or no to this question, have you ever had that situation where you stopped funding or you stopped accepting money because you felt that it was going to be a disadvantage? Yes. So that yes. has happened. Yes, of course it has happened. And this is why we have a, a, a constant discussion and struggle when it comes to funding. Mm. This is why we believe we should be um, financially independent, viable. Uh, our plan, because today our budget is 20% from our own production, 80% yeah. comes from funding. We want to alter this equation. Uh, we want to be independent from production, from subscription, from different um, um, financial streams rather than funding. So it will take time. It's not easy, especially if you're working in such environment where your banks are uh, the way they are in Lebanon. So it's not an, an easy environment to be able to uh, sustain uh, yourself. This is why it's true. We look at the institutions that we take funding from. Uh, we're very proud that we, we are editorially independent. We are involved in, in the societies. We have... We, we, we are concerned in, in the, the demo, democratic process, not only in Lebanon, in the region. And this is why we, we choose the topics we cover. And this is an editorial decision. Right. It's a commitment. It's not a funding issue. It is why we created Daraj, because we believe that free speech is a must, especially when you are in a crisis. You need people to speak up. You need people to have discussions about the topics that are affecting them. It's the, the, the most time where you want people to speak up. So the funding has to meet the editorial line for yes. you to say yes. And when it doesn't, you say no. True. I think that seems to be a very fair way of... It's not easy. Yeah. Because with time, you become responsible for a team. Yeah. You, you, you have, uh, you have uh, wages that you are paying. You have financial responsibility. So you have to ensure this funding coming uh, all the time. Other, you have people in your, uh, coming to your office that you are responsible for. So 
creating this balance is not easy, but so far we have been successful and hopefully we will keep doing it. Mm. And if we find, we, we find ourselves uh, stuck in the corner, we will say it. I have no doubt the rest of my life there will be a Deraj media. So that's, that, it's here to stay. Thank you. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. That's a benefit to Lebanese media and competition too. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that when friends of ours that are in the similar sphere, this environment, this digital media, when Megaphone and Jean Asir gets sort of interviewed, it's Megaphone that amplifies the voices online and protesters show up very quickly. That is media takes part too. Many other platforms did. And I thought that was striking that the Lebanese state, what's left of it, retracts. A judge retracts. Lara Bitar, her cyber crimes bureau investigation, whatever, is shelved, put in a different court, and that's it. It seems like pressure works, or at least it's working. And that's new. And I think that's really October 17's remnants today. I fully agree. Lebanese are not willing to tolerate this. And we should build on that because uh, what is coming in the near future will, will not be less, uh, uh, less hard. Uh, I think the battle that Nizar Sariye and Legal Agenda are going through at the moment is also crucial. And uh, for Nizar Sariye to get another letter from the yeah. syndicate asking him to come because he is giving uh, interviews without permission is very alarming. And I think... Uh, it's a cat and mouse uh, uh, battle, but it's a battle worth taking, even if you lose in certain areas. I think we have um, the, the uh, ethical uh, upper hand in this game mm. because they know that they are intimidating us. They are limiting our freedom of speech, freedom of journalism. They are doing uh, the wrong part of the game. And this is why sometimes they tend to back off. They don't do it all the times. They are still trying to intimidate and control the space. But this is where we are today. Uh, we, we take a step here, backward fr- in, in certain uh, game. Um, I think it's where we are today. It's a battle that we're going through. We cannot say that we have won. We have won uh, in this uh, step, but not necessarily uh, the end. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit skeptical to say that we can rely on what have been achieved. We have we can build on it, but not to rest assured that it is over. It's not over yet. Do you think that kind of momentum is permanent? Because October 17, 2019, and where we are right now, it's hard to imagine Lebanese still having the stomach to go to the streets over and over and over and over, yet they do. I, I, to me, it seems like this is a permanent trend. Even when you lose, it's a permanent trend. And the example of Tare Bitar, I think, is one where there's always going to be a protest outside. Sometimes it gets, in a way, there's there's some pushing and shoving inside, too. But the protesters are not going away. They're always there. It's really about the momentum. When it's happening, what is the topic? The momentum helped us now in the in the mm. uh, in the past uh, a few weeks in the case yeah. of Jean Asir and Lara Bitar, and hopefully in the case of Nizar Sariye. Mm. Sometimes it won't, as you have mentioned. The investigation, the Beirut port investigation, is still uphold. It's not working. Yeah. So despite all the public opinion battles that we went through, the investigation is still not going on, not moving. Yeah. So. 
the battles are plenty. We have to be on alert all the time. We have to organize ourselves. And mostly, we have to be true to what we stand for and what type of battles are we engaging ourselves in. Let's go down the road of battles. This will be the final topic before the break. And then we'll open it to Q&A. I'm going to, without permission, I'm going to bring up a conversation I had with your husband, Hazem al <laughs> two in the morning <laughs> on the streets in Badaro. He finds me, he corners me. He briefed me. me about at 4 a.m., so I wasn't four? that awake. <laughs> Good. He, he told you at 4 in the morning. <laughs> he woke me up, told me about it, but I went back to sleep, so I did not understand per- perfectly. <laughs> I didn't understand either. It took me time to understand. I sat with it the next day. And I was like, what exactly does, what was he trying to say? <laughs> and then I figured it out. It's what you said on Sardeh. And it's something I think Hazem was trying to reconsider something that I often say. And I think it's channeled through both of you in a very, in a very eloquent way. But up until now, it's not the way I see it. So I want to have this back and forth before the break. I don't. I don't think sectarianism is good or bad. Mm-hmm. And I think March 14 was fantastic. And the reason I want to put these two together is because what you said on Sardeh was exactly what Hazem was saying to me. Sectarianism destroyed March 14. 100%. Okay. I need to go down this road with you, but in a friendly way. Yeah, yeah, of course, in a friendly way. How did sectarianism destroy March 14? Look at the leaders of March 14 and the language they have used after the day of March 14. Mm. We have the day of March 14 and what happened after. They have used a very sectarian language in addressing the others at that time. Their political alignments, their political stands were based on sectarian issues, even during elections, uh, choosing what kind of campaigns, the law they have used. The way they addressed the Syrian issue itself was very sectarian. So they were not um, fully secular uh, um, uh, political movement. They they they, They felt in the trap of sectarianism in Lebanon. And I think that was destroyed March 14. I myself was was very active at, at the very first few weeks. Later on, I found myself out. I didn't believe in them anymore. They don't represent me. That's why I felt that I'm represented as a person in uh, uh, October uh, protests in October Lebanon so. later on. What trap are you... What, what, if we say sectarian trap and they fell into it, what is that trap? The trap is uh, labeling yourself as Christian, Shia, Sunni, and wanting to address others and others address you based on your sect, not on your citizenship. I think this country have suffered enough from so many issues. Sectarianism is one of them. And today we have voices uh, proposing federalism and confederalism yeah. again. Yeah. And it's another facade of March 14, of uh, the sectarian face of March 14, which is uh, um, building Lebanon uh, as divided country, not as a country for all. So in that, if you're able to stay, that's uh, 2005 to the more extreme voices today, yeah. even on the time zone issue, they started wanting a divorce. <laughs> 
because we had two time zones, which sounded silly at times, almost like a circus, more than a serious debate. But I agree with you. The ugly side of sectarianism quickly showed itself during that time zone fiasco. True. But do you see a thread from March 14 to the federalist divorce advocates? Do you think of that as an extension to March 14? Of course it is, because what is um, the federalist approach? It is to say we are Christians and we don't want to live with the Muslims anymore. And let's divide the country based on that. Tell me how would you do it? How would you do it here in Ashrafiyya? And you know, Ras Beirut, uh, is it real? Is it a real solution? Does that solve the problems of Lebanon, or does it just put some limitations between uh, Lebanese people themselves? I don't see it as um, as a strategic or or um, I, I don't see it a solution. I see it adding um, more layers to the division we have. And Lebanon is a very small country. Yeah. You cannot imply a federalism the way it's implemented in other countries here. So maybe I'm too nostalgic and maybe I'm too romantic. I don't think of March 14 as divorce along communal lines. Mm -hmm. And I don't think of sectarianism as in itself a problem that prevents people from moving on. And the reason I go down this road is because I remember March 14 and I remember the aftermath. I don't remember the ugly side of sectarianism derailing political parties from agreeing to move on from the civil war. In other words, my memory of those of that stretch, at least in politics, not in emotion, not in whatever, it's two unlikely warlords, Samir Jaja and Walid Jumblat, are talking to each other. One's out of jail, one is for the first time seeing Syria as a problem and a real problem and moving on. I see that. I don't see sectarianism when I see that. I see old communities and communal leaders that fought during the civil war trying to find compromise post-2005. I also see, and I, I think this is a true, sent, a true statement, there's the obvious uh, invisibility of one community during that era, which is most Lebanese Shia are not part of that old March 14 movement. That is true. But I don't think of that as sectarian. I think of that as the same reason why most Lebanese Shia today are suffering the most because of Hezbollah, not because they're Shia. There was a famous incident during that period. I don't know if you remember when there was a political meeting um, yes, of course. By uh, Jumblat, yeah, yeah. where he kicked out Habib Sadiq, yes, yes. whom was a, a secular and a yeah. respected Shia figure. Yeah. And because uh, uh, Jumblat, like other uh, uh, sectarian leaders, don't believe in secular voices, mm. they want a sectarian leader to, f to confront them mm. because they gain uh, leg legit legitimacy from other sectarian leaderships. Mm. So I lived that period. To give credit, it's not credit, March 14 suffered from series of assassinations. These assassinations, what made them legitimate? It did not give uh, credentials to the uh, uh, speech that they have delivered mm. because it was sectarian. But at that period, the assassinations, the security alert was above the discussion that was going on. That what give a bit of legitimacy during that period. Mm. Later on, 
it faded away. But um, unfortunately, they made compromises with each other. I mean, uh, they were in bed in, in, in elections and so many other issues and appointments. If you look at the uh, Council of Ministers, the appointments of certain sectors, certain names within the um, it was all based on the understanding between those sectarian leaderships. I won't go too far down the rabbit hole because I think it's a... Uh this subject one day should be written about extensively. I think it's finally we're beginning to reflect a bit on those years. For me, March 14 dies in 2008, and that's that. And I think it dies under the threat of weapons turned to internal strife in Hamra, Ras Beirut, in the mountains. It dies when there's not really sectarianism at play. It's Hezbollah becoming a much bigger issue. I'm not undermining Hezbollah. But, I'm saying why March 14 didn't really uh, play well in facing Hezbollah. Actually, they helped Hezbollah win by the language that they have the reason This I, is my point. The reason I use that uh, reference is because other than Tariq Bitar, who's recent years, that's the last time the Lebanese state tried to challenge that group. That's a March 14 government. It's not a sectarian attack against the Shia. That's two individuals in the airport and some problems with telecoms that are interfering with Hezbollah's network. The Lebanese state makes cosmetic adjustments. We're at war. That, to me, is the end of March 14. I don't, I don't know sectarianism kills a movement. Like October 17, I don't think it dies because of sectarianism. But it strips it from the legitimacy. It, just, it takes out the, uh, the morale of it. So, yes, I, I mean... I think Hezbollah is the biggest danger in Lebanon. But it's not enough for me to uh, accept your, not you, Muhammad, No, I'll take it as a good thing. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not enough to say that you are opposing Hezbollah to take legitimacy. I need to look at your political agenda. That's when I agenda. know I'm beginning to sound like him, if that's the reference. <laughs> I mean, he was a good example, if that's what, I mean. <laughs> but you, you still, you're, you're committed to the at least the belief that sectarianism is the biggest problem in getting a movement to take hold. Sectarianism combined with Hezbollah's arms. I cannot separate them from each other. They feed within to each other. I mean, without Hezbollah's arms, uh, it wouldn't be easy to feed the sectarianism all over and vice versa. Mm. Hezbollah is benefiting from the sectarian voices mm. to enhance his, uh, his power among his uh, Shia supporters. Mm. So I think they feed within to each other. I don't separate them. I see the extremists today that are trying to get out of this country by partitioning and making Batroun their capital <laughs> as extremely insecure Christians on the decline, expressing themselves in an increasingly hostile way. But that to me is still, it's not sectarianism is the result of that. I think of that as the consequence of the last 30 years, where everything went wrong and that community feels increasingly insecure. 30 years and what we haven't achieved. Uh, I mean, before the war. I mean, the war mm. didn't erupt only because we had uh, Palestinian uh, armed groups in Lebanon. The failing system at that time, it was successful in the 50s, but it failed later on. We need to, to look back 
at the experience of Lebanon before the war, during the war, and after the war. Is it sustainable to have a country that is split among sects? Uh, where are we from the modern world, democratic world? Do we still want to be treated as Sunnis and Shias, etc.? Uh, to be appointed in, in the Lebanese University and the Minister of, Council of Ministers on everywhere based on who we are, um, I think this is something we need to discuss. So one more question before the break. And the Q&A, we can make it more about journalism. One more question. If it's not Fatah in Lebanon, what destroyed Lebanon? Of course it's a major. So I'm no, not no, no. arguing. Sorry, sorry. No, no, I agree. 1950s and 1960s. That's the only experience of something that seems successful for independent Lebanon. And that's where the army... The identity struggle, don't undermine the identity struggle that Lebanese have lived in the 50s. We had some strife before Fatah. We did. But the 58 uh, events, etc. Right. Right. So Fatah but came later on. Fatah came in 1970. True. 1958 is an 11-week war. 1969, sorry. Fatah, uh, 1958 is an 11-week war, and it's curtailed, it stops. And the army, back then, produced decent generals that were decent in Ba'abda. We can look back at his flaws, too. Fu'ajheb is not bad in Lebanese history. You're comparing to the, to the day. No, no, no. I'm comparing to what we live with right now, 2023. Tomorrow's the anniversary of the Civil War, 48 years True. since... Kata'ib and Fatah shot at each other, and this city was torn apart. I don't think of Kata'ib, extreme fighters, militiamen, as part of Lebanese history prior to 1969. I don't think of them as wanting to kill. Actually, I don't think of no, any... No, I think... I think you're not reading the history correctly because they have been armed, they have been trained. Uh, the way they looked at Lebanon, the version, the old version of Kata'ib is totally different than today and they, what the, they are trying to The arms to and be. training were the 1970s. Yes, but if you look at the rhetoric that they have evolved at that time, it was not, uh, it was not that peaceful. But it wasn't violent. It wasn't a militia. That's, I think, where I try to always hammer this down as much as I can is that we still live with that problem. And I think there's a holistic approach to Hezbollah that doesn't always address the issue right. It's almost like if we just include it all in one basket, we can go back to 1975. I don't think that's true. I think the moment you allow regional war in Lebanon, there's no Lebanon. But that becomes 50 years of people letting go of what is normal. We take it for granted now that there's militia there is a strategic Iranian hub in Lebanon, but we accept it as, well, that's just a price we pay. We should still get MPs to do the right thing in parliament. I think these two things cannot happen at the same time. I, I... <laughs> oh, that's a biased clap right there. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not allowed to clap. <laughs> I think we can have uh, some intersections, but I don't agree fully on what you, uh, how you read it. Mm. Um, I agree that Fatah's involvement is a major factor when it comes to war. But looking at Lebanon in the 50s, it was a good example. But was it perfect? I'm not sure. Uh, the it, country was sectarian, built on sectarian bases. There were 
communities in Lebanon that they felt that they are not part of the country. And I think this is what uh, the militias that came afterward invested in. So there were roots for that. And we should address them when we look at the uh, Lebanese experience before the war. It's a lengthy issue. I'd rather not to get into it. I prefer to sure, sure. Listen but thank to you for letting me go down that road. It's the first time. Yeah. All of this, all of this was meant for Hazim at two in the morning. <laughs> I just didn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> so thank you for recording this episode with us. There's a five ten minute break. Order whatever you want. Grab a snack. Q and A will be in roughly ten minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. I'd like the Q&A to be intimate, and I'd like it to be focused as much as possible on journalism. But if you want to ask other things, that's fine. But is there anyone in the audience that has a question from the top? No one. Wow. No questions. Ammar has a question. <laughs> Let's pass the mic to Ammar. Yes. No, and please, more, please stand so we can see okay. you a bit. Yeah, thanks. It was more an observation than a question about uh, what Diana said. We, we often think of, uh, let's say, forbidden areas in, in Lebanon where we cannot take our cameras and, and, and work. As a photographer, I had this experience. Of course, we often think of Hezbollah so, so, Sorry, Amar, I think the mic is dead, actually. That's, cause, uh, it is? No, I think uh, people can hear me very well. Oh, it's working? Well. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So we often think of the Hezbollah areas. We think about the south, the Dahye, etc. But unfortunately, there are many, many other areas where it's not possible, like Solidaire. In Solidaire, if you take out a camera, I mean, not a tourist camera, but a real camera, and you want to interview people, it's totally forbidden. It's very tough, etc. So I just wanted to... To make That's sure. very true. The culture of not having a camera in a public space where it should be guaranteed everywhere in the world, in a public area, you have the right to put the camera and film and do interviews. Uh, here in Lebanon, we are treating public space as if it's private, it's security, it's uh, um, uh, considered part of a militia uh, control zone. So we don't have the liberty to film as we think we do. You know, I experienced this myself. 15 years giving walking tours in Beirut. Every other stop, security. True. No cameras, no film, even on stupid locations like the Holiday Inn. Those soldiers at the bottom would actually ambush us and say, no photos. We were taking photos of a skeleton or crossing the street sometimes. It could, it could be benign locations. La British and Mur is right there. It's, like, it's been there for even at 50 the years. airport. Yeah. If you when you enter the airport, the first sign in yellow, photography is not allowed. <laughs> Why? In every airport and ev everywhere in the world, you have the right in your mobile, except here in the airport, because we know lots of things happen at the airport. 
what, who passes, what passes, what kind of merchants, weapons, money, whatever is being smuggled. Why you don't want to come when when you ask the cameras to be shut off, then you are being not being transparent. And there, in, there's something that you are hiding. So whenever there is uh, a lack of transparency in terms of cameras, make make uh, be positive that there's something happening. So since we're within this, a very, very eloquent guest to ask this question, Ammar Abedramo, a celebrated photographer, I want to ask you, when you use your camera versus now when you use your phone, do you feel the difference? Even in Solitaire, for example. Technically, yes, there is a big difference. I mean, you have much more uh, levels of, uh, of tuning, let's say, on, on your camera than on the phone. But recently I have to say that I've done many uh, stories that are, let's say, hidden mm. with a phone. So people suspect you of being a tourist or uh, an idiot, which is perfect. <laughs> 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 While with a big camera, they think you're maybe a spy or much more dangerous, a journalist. Right. Other, other questions? Oh, everyone's shy tonight. Let's see. Ah, oh, in the back. Hi, first of all. Um, Could thank you stand you. up so we can yeah, see you? Sorry. Yeah, thanks. I was just wondering, uh, what was your thoughts? So how do you envisage the future of uh, journalism in Lebanon? Can you repeat the question? How do you envisage? I, or okay. what are your thoughts on the, the future of uh, journalism in Lebanon? Thanks. I would say it's something worth uh, fighting for. We have a good base of uh, journalism freedom in Lebanon. It's not ideal. Uh, we're suffering from uh, lots of intimidation and we've seen the ruling class trying to limit that as much as possible. But I think with the independent voices, we do have a chance. If you look at Uh, the media landscape when it comes to the mainstream media, uh, the televisions of Lebanon, then I'm not optimistic at all because uh, the narrative that is being run in these media outlets is mainly either populist or sectarian or aligned with the funders of, of uh, the media outlets in the country. So I have two medias, media uh, scenes in the country, the mainstream one and the independent one. Uh, I have faith in the new faces. I wouldn't use the term alternative. I believe in the independent voices, whether media or um, uh, lawyers, uh, activists. Uh, I think they're all uh, part of the media landscape. So the future of journalism in Lebanon is a wide uh, notion. Um, I think we're controlled by the development of the technological scene. At the same time, we have some strength that we need to invest in. Uh, it is critical. I see lots of challenges, uh, but I think the battle is going on and I do see some hope. I, I do see uh, young voices, uh, committed ones, uh, smart ones. Um, and I, I don't think it's easy for the ruling class to really control media in Lebanon. So I think it's a worth, uh, it's a battle worth fighting for. Samer. Hello. Hello. All right, so uh, I just, a little comment before I ask the question. Um, 
I'm the co-founder of 99% Media in Quebec. And uh, at some point, we had a battle with the Directeur Election Générale de, de Québec over censorship because they didn't consider us as media. Eventually, we fought a short two-week campaign and we sort of got them to acknowledge uh, that there are non-traditional forms of media, which include uh, independent media, alternative media, and student media as well. But my question for you very specifically is, why do you avoid the alternative uh, label, especially within the Lebanese context? I mean, I get it within the global context of the West, especially what, what alternative media means there, but how, why in Lebanon? Simply because it sideline you as, as a media because it undermines your ability, your exposure, your impact. Uh, and the context in which it, was, it is used in Lebanon, it treats you when, when they use the term alternative as if you are not uh, good enough or serious mm. enough or um, valuable enough. So that's why I try to avoid the term because I think we're media. We're journalists. We're doing our job as journalists. We should be treated and labeled as such. This is why I'm avoiding the alternative uh, terminology. Other questions? Maybe I'll ask you. Jenna. They need to celebrate maybe and enjoy their time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why 2017? I always thought that year is interesting. That, that's, the, that's the moment Daraj Media is born. I'm, I'm guessing the idea is earlier. The idea was born after 2011, but for it to materialize, uh, it came up in 2017. We started working on it on 2015. Again, uh, in 2011, when we thought the ceilings were going high and we will enjoy different uh, Arab region, more democratic, and then the backlash was severe and harsh. And then independent voices started to come out. Mm. This is when we thought of Daraj. To Daraj, to materialize, because we started uh, looking for investors at the beginning, then that, that tra uh, track failed, then we moved looking for funders. Daraj was launched in 2017. It took a while, uh, but the idea was, uh, uh, was born after 2011. And remind me, you left Future TV within a year before Daraj Media? The same year. The same year. Yeah. The idea was before, mm. frankly... I stayed in, in future because of financial reasons. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a working person. I live from my work. So definitely I can't uh, live a job without insuring something else. So I stayed uh, for financial reasons. But I knew after 2011 that my days are over because the equation that governed my work before 2011, um, I couldn't see it. Uh, going on after 2011. Uh, so that's why I felt that my days are, are done and I'm seeing my uh, myself going out, but I needed a way out. Daraj was the way out. And again, I know it's two different people, two different stories, but Zeven has that same trajectory. He exits future, now he's a digital media person. Yes, he with is. With a podcast and online shows. So it's something about that generation and future able to wither that storm. Uh, future definitely um, 
uh, had some really good talents, uh, not only in Lebanon, but in the region. Mm. Uh, and I would always cherish my experience in future television. I will never consider myself not to be part of that experience, despite all the limitations and censorship sometimes. Uh, my best years as a journalist happened during that era. Yeah. And to give a credit, uh, future television enjoyed a very diverse uh, 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 people, yeah. uh, not like any other mainstream media in the country. Right. Uh, we were different. Uh, we managed. I mean, the type of, of things I say publicly, we used to discuss internally on in future television. And many people didn't like me because I was vocal and I used to say what the same things I'm saying today. But we used to speak about it in, in future. Of course, it has its political limitations. And with time, with the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, it increased. But again, it was, it was limited by uh, the landscape it was created in. Yeah. Uh, so Again, uh, it was a rich experience. I would love to speak about it and write about it one day. Uh, it's not; it wasn't one-faced. Uh, uh, my it's best different, different roles as well. Different it's, roles, yeah. different. It represents part of the Lebanese history at that period. Yeah. Other questions? I can open the door to any subject. Wow. Maybe it's the weather. Oh, there is one. Oh. And please introduce yourself. Who are you exactly? Hi, Diana. <laughs> um, I have actually just two comments to uh, make. Uh, the first is uh, about journalism. I think a country is formed of people and army to protect the people. The journalism and you, the journalists, you're the soldiers of this country. Keep it up. Keep your strengths. We need you always. We need a fair, we need an objective, and a real, um, uh, 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 to make an objective uh, uh, point of view, not to go through the streams of, you know, the Lebanese uh, uh, being pro this party or that party. So good luck on that. Thank you. Second point. I had an experience just a couple of days ago. I was here somewhere in Jemaisi having uh, dinner with a friend of mine. Actually, she's my cousin. She's Muslim and she was fasting. It was time to eat. And that was on Thursday where the Palm uh, Day uh, is. When uh, actually the, the, day, the day before the Palm Day, uh, Thursday, where people were going across the street from one church to another, attending several church, churches. And here we are. I was not fasting. I was just uh, just a regular person, uh, you know, not, not an atheist, but I don't follow any of the rules of uh, religion. And I want this country to stay like that. We were all together to each his own worship, to each, to each his own uh, way of living, and uh, to enjoy being around together. This is what makes Lebanon different than any other country in the world, in the world, being all together in one area, in one environment, one street, celebrating our own uh, religions and respecting each other's and having food 
being shared with all of us during Iftar, Christians, Muslims, uh, whoever. Uh, this is what's nice about Lebanon. Uh, this is the Lebanon I want for my children. This is the Lebanon, actually, I had lived it when I was, when it was in the 60s, 70s. That was the real Lebanon. We unfortunately lost it. I hope we'll regain it someday. I hope the new generation will make it better. Um, in the meantime, it's a transition period. We have to accept it the way it is, regardless of what are the reasons, and there are many reasons. The major one is the most, the most of the most, and sorry to tell you, is the existence of the army of Hezbollah in this country. That's making everything, uh, uh, you know, hopeless, <laughs> to I say the least. I share with you what you said about Lebanon, and this is what's keeping me here as well. Uh, I love being here, meeting lovely people like you, chatting with you, feeling, I love the country. Uh, I feel sad that I want my son to leave and get good education. I decided to stay, I don't want to leave, because I, sh I, I share with you that there is something to defend and to fight for. Uh, peacefully, because we've had enough from arms and militias and fighting or whatever. Uh, and I think this is the core of Lebanon, the existence of these diverse uh, communities. But we have to find a common, um, common definition of who we are as Lebanese people. Uh, definitely, uh, the, the, the way it is like now cannot sustain. Uh, politically, whatever you, you want to name it. Uh, we need to keep the spirit, but we need to have a drastic change politically. And this is essential, I think. It goes back to the very first day when you put your children in school, when they are in first grade or even nurseries. That's where the education starts. When you start teaching your children at home and at school, that we have to accept each other. We have to live with each other. It goes really, I mean, it's a long struggle. It's not an easy job, but we should do it. We should start with it. Actually now, in today's world, now, Lebanon, mind you, is way better than the time before when we were, you know, having the civil war, fighting with each other. Uh, now uh, I see the, uh, our children's generation, I see them more aware of the problem. We did not. We failed. Let's hope that the generations, you know, next generations would be uh, better. There is hope for Lebanon. There, there must be a hope for Lebanon. Uh, Lebanese are, are different. Lebanese are uh, smart really smart. They make it way great in, uh, abroad. The, Lab the real Lebanese people are really the abroad people, not the here ones. The communities in, 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 in the, the diaspora, States, yeah, we have an active diaspora. I mean, they are, they, they're always together. They're, they're, they're having great time together. Here, it's the, the problem. Problem. I mean, we can keep on going, uh, talking about uh, what are the problems. There are several ones. The major ones are our Zama, 
I mean, <laughs> I agree with you. It's but, a matter of but time. But I don't want to go into need, this politics. We need a yeah. long time. And yeah, I think it's, it's a long story. We shouldn't expect uh, something to happen, to happen very overnight. Uh, um, yes, overnight. Yeah. Uh, we need to accumulate and expect it's a long-term struggle. When I see strategy. people resisting war now, sorry. Yeah, we have another question, actually. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. When <laughs> I see, uh, just the last one. <laughs> when I see people now resisting the war, this is a good plus. True. You know? I mean, so let's hope True. for the better. Yes. Thank I you. Agree. Sorry. I took Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, as a media student, I have studied a lot of things related to everything politics. So I had a media activist class and I, and I had a lot of classes concerning everything related to activism and how we can potentially have a change in Lebanon. Now, something that in my classes that I haven't uh, really had an answer for was how do we change the mentality of the of the people that are here like the mentality of literally um, some generations are being born in in families that support specific political parties and are affiliated and aren't actually uh, doing things better but worse in, in, in retrospect. So how do we change the mentality? Where should we start to change the generations to come? And also the, the like to, to start, start like giving birth to change from the mentalities of people, not from the actual um, political, uh, let's say uh, political campaigns. I understand your frustration because I share it myself yes. and uh, I feel uh, depressed sometimes when I see myself repeating stories and narratives that I have worked on 25, 30 years ago, but they are still going on the mm -hmm. same thing. Uh, but I didn't lose my belief. I know that some wrong doings are repeating themselves. Um, don't let that depress you or stop you. Because it will. Um, change doesn't happen in a blink of a second. It doesn't happen in one day, especially in a complicated situation like the one we are. Just believe in what you want. Believe in what you're saying. Look for the people who would share your views. Uh, have a good communication. Try to influence the public by your work, by your work as a journalist, by the stories you cover. You might not face um, support all the time, but don't lose hope. Uh, and I'm not saying it as a cliche, because this is something I believe in, mm -hmm. because the difficulties we have in Lebanon are so deeply rooted, it will not change in one day, and don't have this false hope in your head. Things need time, needs accumulation, needs really collective work. And that won't happen easily. But if you find those little groups, those little bubbles, stick to them. Talk to the people who would share the same ideas and values and start to build those little communities because it might work with time. But start working on it and don't give up easily. Okay, Be a I fighter. will. Thank you. But what if, like, what if the people that support me, that, like... 
are in the same bubble as me, or like 3%, how do I get to the 97%? It's a process. Don't expect to get to them quickly. Uh, well, you have to amplify your use of maybe social media. Maybe you will become an influencer who would create a, def- a, a, sp- a special content. Uh, but don't stick yourself to that hope. Work on yourself, work on the people around you, and we'll see. Maybe it works. Okay, thank you. I'll ask you a question before we take it back to the audience. Uh, a huge question. You can cherry pick it as much as you'd like. Take whatever you want from it and say what you want. We have a superstar sitting right in the middle, Dima Sade. Yes. When I embarrass her, yes, she's right there. You're a superstar too. I'm Don't an, put me in this category. <laughs> you're one of the most charismatic journalists in Lebanon. In the world. <laughs> we have a fantastic photographer right behind Dima Sade too. <laughs> we all agree with that. Uh, I pale in comparison. I just talk for a living. I write for a living. I share stories on a regular basis. You guys are pioneers at what you do, and you deserve credit for what you've done. That is a true statement. I won't take it any other way. What I will add to that is the role that we play, particularly you. Are we messaging the problem the right way? I'll give you one stark example. I think all of us, in different ways, supported Tarit Bitar. We're not the state. You're not the state, Dima, you're not the state. You work in the most visible television station. You're the most visible digital platform. I'm the most visible English podcast in Lebanon. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> anyway, for the time being, I think all of us supported him the most we could. And we said it earlier that even with all of us in different ways, amplifying that support and putting pressure on MPs to defend his role, putting pressure on visiting dignitaries to read these articles, to watch these videos, and to make sure Tarib Bitar can do his job. He can't do his job. Is there anything that got wrong or got lost in the messaging of why he cannot do his job? No, I don't think it's the messaging. I think the messaging were correct. Uh, the amplifying of it was correct. It's the stubbornness. It's the uh, we have a really deeply rooted, strong regime. Don't undermine the political elites and how strong they are. And uh, th- they simply are getting away with it. First, don't take Lebanon out of the regional context. Why wouldn't they get away with it when they look around them, when they see Bashar al-Assad is still in place, when they see uh, Sisi or the Gulf uh, leaderships, all the autocrats of not only the region, the world, from Putin to whomever, are still in position. It's, um, it's a mixed up world today that we're living in and they're getting away with it. I looked for allies and I found a few. One of them is Nadim Shahadi, who was actually sitting here last week to refer to what worked in recent history, the way we had an international investigation. It's the special tribunal, and that's a fact. Whether we like it or not, how we feel about it today, or that, that doesn't matter. The process worked, and there's a verdict. The Lebanese state did not ar- arrest those two individuals, and the other two are probably dead. 
none of us, I think, in this world really made that message clear, that there's a path for Tariq Bitar to do his job. And I felt that this was an isolated voice at times, saying that Tariq Bitar cannot do his job. There are structural reasons he cannot. I don't know if the media sphere got that right. It made it feel like protesting is the way to do it. First of all, we, we cannot talk about one media uh, scene. Uh, uh, the, the media that was standing on the right side of history, at least, when it came to that issue. Not everyone was. But I felt like there's a missed opportunity to explain why he can't do his work and a bigger missed opportunity to explain what worked in recent history. No, no one was really talking that language. Tariq Bitar couldn't do his job for, for valid reasons. The political elite blocked him. They agreed on stopping him from doing his job. And this is something, this is not the first time we have political leadership that is blocking justice since the end of civil war. So what happened with Tariq Bitar is no different than what happened before. What's new about the Tariq Bitar issue is himself, his character, standing alone, facing the political leadership against from Hassan Nasrallah to all other political leadership. Tariq Bitar was a real courageous judge that we need to support. And this is what we try to do as journalists. Objectively, he stood for the authorities in Lebanon. So why was the media shy about the tribunal's success and pointing the finger in one direction and getting a verdict? Nobody talked about it, and that is exactly the same template. The, tribu the international tribunal? The, the Hariri's tribunal, you mean? The special tribunal. Yeah, okay. Its whole inception from beginning to end. That's the only path Tarabitar could take or we could take to make this a reasonable investigation. Look, there is a justification. Tariq Bitar and others don't believe an international path to achieve justice. They believe that this kind of, of path should be internal. Uh, and I know this for a fact from what I've read about him. Mm. He believes that we should support and sustain and uh, uh, yani work on the league, on the local Uh, path of, of justice mm. rather than seeking international ones. Mm. There is a debate about this issue. Why international, not local? Why not local only, not international? It's a debate. It's something that we should uh, I address. Mean, I mean it more as media addressing that concern. Whether media is a reflection of this kind of debate. Media also reflects that there is a division whether we go international or we... It's the same like, like the uh, uh, sanctions. You have mm -hmm. a total different approaches towards do we want sanctions and the, on individuals or, or not uh, when it comes to Lebanon. We have friends coming over oh, now. Good. So, <laughs> Who are the friends? Mohammed <laughs> Najm. Oh, good. Okay. But it feels like there's a knee-jerk hatred for anything related to Hariri and therefore ignoring the only successful international investigation that could have been amplified further whether or not Tariq Bitar wants to stick to the local scene or not. I think that was a role media could have played in preserving what worked and talking about it. Very few people did this. They, you can count them on one hand. But there is also, look, the, and it's I not just, agree. It's not just media, it's Human Rights Watch. It's every legal agenda didn't talk about it either. The outcome of the International Tribunal is controversial. I mean, yes. I, I, I supported it. I believe in the outcome of it. But where is it now? How can you, um, how can you implement it? Much further than Tariq Bitar. 
I don't know. I mean, but Tar- Vitar there's names, is working there's within an the. I mean, it, there's no arrest. That's that's the problem of this kind of uh, screwed up country we live in. Is that even when you have a verdict, the state cannot do its job anyway. But at least there was an answer. Tarabitar has been to his office for three hours the last two years. And there was a storm. But you cannot have a country that is relying all the time on international uh, judiciary. You really need to work on the internal one as well. I'm not saying that. Mm. I think we should work on the parallel uh, lanes. Do you think media did its job, though? And at least focusing? I cannot judge the media as one landscape. I think there are different mediums. Uh, Mm. I didn't look at it from this angle. Mm. I think we should focus on internal judiciary and support judges like Tariq Bitar and not neglect the international path, whether through uh, tribunals like the one uh, mm. uh, of international tribunals of Lebanon, mm. or maybe like the cases that have launched in Europe against uh, corrupt bankers in Lebanon. Thank you for letting me ask that. Are there any other questions? Yes, the gentleman in the background. And Samir, you're, not, you're up next. <laughs> this, this, I guess, is on a Similar topic. Oh, that's William, the owner oh. of Alias. Hi, Ronnie. Nice to see you again. <laughs> but kind of with, within this context, what does the future of, of journalism look like or future of independent journalism look like? And I know you kind of touched upon this earlier, but within kind of a global move between or kind of a centralization of kind of wealth and power, and more and more, I guess, what you describe as oligarchs owning media companies and using that for their own interests. What is the media going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years? Not just within Lebanon, but within a kind of a global spectrum. I think we already started seeing the change. Uh, independent media, independent voices. Uh, we've seen people coming out as journalists without being part of any media uh, outlet. Uh, they're individuals, they have launched their own uh, channels on YouTube and other social media, and they are creating very good content. I'm talking globally. And we've seen this being happening also here in, in Lebanon and in the region. So I think the change is not limited to today. We will keep seeing it in the future because people have access to content, have access to technology, so they can create their own. What I would say is the basics of journalism are still there. Good story, good coverage, good good approach is still there, whether you are individual or a media, a big media, or a small independent platform. Uh, the basics of journalism should be um, followed wherever you are. Uh, I think technology will will give us or enable us to see uh, more manifestations in the future. Um, I'm not optimistic and I'm not pessimistic. I'm observing what's happening. Uh, and I think we should be um, flexible in how we uh, change the way we present our, our content. Uh, we cannot just say that we are traditional and we just we want to have big production. No, sometimes very, very small uh, productions uh, uh, can make a big impact. Uh, I think we should stick to flexibility and observe how things are evolving and maintain our ethical and professional approach 
uh, and try to make this balance between what is technology and what uh, how it is evolving and what is the basics of journalism and uh, the narrative that we're working in and and you you see an optimistic future in terms of i guess how does an independent journalist such as yourself or someone in the west the bastion of kind of you know freedom of speech compete against a newspaper such as the independent in england which is called the independent but then owned by lord lebedev of siberia and hampton like how how's that going to work going forward when jeff bezos owns a newspaper when this is you know increasingly becoming the sphere of oligarchs are you optimistic that there's a space to push back against that i'm not optimistic about that this is a challenge this is what i said there is a challenge because not only jeff bezos you have look at the region uh, uh, when when saudi arabia announced that they will invest 64 billion dollars from now till 2030 uh, in entertainment that is alarming if you look at the amount of money that is being invested in the mainstream media and having new outlets and in, in, uh, in investing in spreading fake news, creating bots, hacking phones of journalists and activists. There's a lot of money being invested in counter narrative. This is why the burden on independent voices, independent media is really massive. Uh, but the possibility is there with technology, with will, with collaborations. Part of our strength as Daraj, we are a small uh, media outlet, is the collaboration we have with international independent media outlets. This is giving us not only access to information, but is giving us also strength, giving us voices, uh, impact. And I think those kind of collaborations are essential between independent voices to be able to face the oligarchs and businessmen who are controlling the mainstream media. We have time for two more questions. Samir, go ahead. All right, so um, to what extent does independent media, especially in the context of Lebanon where the mainstream media is not independent at all, have a role in reconstructing the missing history from our history books you know, from the civil war and onwards we've seen that being happening already uh, if you look at the type of events and production related to um, um, uh, the the civil war the family of the missings of the civil war um, they are still they are more visible today than before it's not because of mainstream media, it's because of the independent voices and in the independent media. So I agree with you. We have a role, we have a responsibility in rereading and representing our past that was never addressed properly because what happened after 1991 when the war ended is we flipped the page as if nothing happened and we moved on we did not look at we did not look at the civil war and what happened in it so i think this is a major issue that the lebanese should uh, focus on not only independent media all independent voices all critics or those who love the country should look at the history the history mainly the Lebanese war, what happened in it, and how can we move forward? The gentleman in the middle. Ah, okay, thank you. Uh, so I'm, I'm a complete ignorant 
when it comes to journalism. I come from education development background. Uh, and oh, what, Fahed. Yes. I recognize you. <laughs> so uh, From the education, not the ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> So my question is, teachers in the country have a major political ideological role that they should play in each and every classroom. And it's very hard given the structural constraints, given the, um, the political constraints. How do you see this shift in, in teachers' role? Thank you for this question because academia is... Um a major uh, struggle and challenge for us, uh, especially nowadays uh, with the collapse and all the difficulties we're having. Uh, to me, the real challenge when it comes to education is not enabling our young generation being critical enough. I am the outcome of Lebanese University, and I feel extremely saddened when I look at the students of the university in which atmosphere they are living and studying and the limitations uh, uh, they are having. You know, academia is about uh, free thinking. It's about critical thinking. And we're losing that, except for certain academic institutions and certain schools. And I don't know if we're going to lose that. Many other countries have lost it. Even if you look at Egypt, even the American University of Cairo, they have limitations when it comes to research, when it comes to critical thinking. I think this is a struggle that we're going through here in Lebanon with the so many universities, commercial universities that are coming out, with the public sector being completely uh, collapsing. So what type of education are we giving our students? Needless to say, critical thinking towards our students. Are we teaching them that they, they should worship, worship the leadership, the leaders of the country, or be critical and vocal about them? Journalism is about being critical, about saying truth to power. Education is much, to me, education is, is to be more critical when it comes to that sense. So I'm very, very skeptical or alarmed. I think there is a big responsibility when it comes to good education, but I'm very uh, fearful. I'm very, like, um, um, I have so many questions. Will be able to do that in Lebanon? Uh, that's a big question. And I think this is the major struggle, education. What type of education are we giving our, our uh, coming generations? Is it ideology based on sect, on whomever is running uh, the certain school or certain university? So uh, it is a challenge. And I think not as journalists, but as educators uh, is, is a big responsibility on you, on us. Uh, we need to preserve uh, the heritage that we had in terms of education. And I'm seeing it, how it is vanishing in front of my own eyes as anyone else. So it is the question that is facing us. Thank you for the question. You know, when it comes to heritage and the legacy Lebanon continues to have, which is it is still, relatively speaking, a fairly free country when it comes to expression the way we understand it compared to the neighborhood Lebanon is doing better even in its worst state it's still doing okay compared to how bad we know things get and that heritage that was once celebrated here 
and we used to pull in the best writers and thinkers and journalists of the region, they would publish here. True. They wouldn't publish in other, other cities. They would come to Beirut. That's a huge legacy, and it continues because there are still pioneers in this country like you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Derej Media, derej.media.com, social media, Derej Media, Dianam Alid. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It and was a pleasure. And thank you for Alias. Uh, thank you to Alias. Thank you to everyone who showed up in the rain during Ramadan, a full house. So you guys, thank you. Thank you. Next next week, Jean Asir from Megaphone. Uh, follow the podcast, The Beirut Banyan. The following week, Lara Bitar, public source. And the following week, Dima Sadat. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on getting you on the podcast. <laughs> Now it's officially been recorded. You have to come one day. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>